I feel I feel I've been I've, as if I've been rescued. Um, so yeah, hey Tim, hey Tim, um, thanks for having thanks for coming on the show. Um, I I feel I mean I'm in the presence of almost tech royalty because um, and I don't think I need to tell people who follow pull requests unless they're very young. Uh, but O'Reilly's books has been like a force of nature when it comes to tech. And in fact, right this very second, I am not just blowing smoke up your ass, Tim. I literally have three O'Reilly books on my desk. <laughs> Uh, well, um, you know, uh, we're, we're, we're still we still do publish books, but we're also uh, uh, our, our our principal business is a uh, an online uh, learning service, uh, learning and reference. So uh, uh, we're actually a software subscription these days, much more than we are a book publisher. But that that being said, uh, uh, we love that people still love our books. Yeah, and I mean, for those for, for whom it's still not ringing a bell, you've seen his, you know. O'Reilly books for sure. Um, they're always with the same sort of color and formatting. There's always an animal on the cover. One thing that I've been shocked by, by the way, Tim, this this might take you back. You might find it amusing. I used to buy your books at Cody's Books, which used to exist on Telegraph yeah. Avenue in Berkeley. And I think I own both the Llama book and the Camel book on Pearl. And I, I, yeah, I probably bought at least easily 40 to 50 O'Reilly books that day. And I've also used your online service, which is very good, by the way. I think it's like structured as like a flat monthly thing and you get access to lots of content. It's actually a phenomenal deal if you're in the learning yeah, it's business. A, yeah, it's actually, it's actually, uh, it's interesting because it's not just uh, access to books. There's uh, thousands of hours of video uh, courses. Uh, there's, inter there's interactive, uh, you know, uh, labs where you can uh, try things there's live online training and so on so it's it's uh it's uh you know it's it's basically a um you know, probably the biggest part of the customer base is corporate but uh it is available for for uh, you know consumers as well for individuals i should say anyway uh but that's not what we want to talk about we want to talk about uh big ideas yeah. Yes. Although, can I, can I sneak in one more rally? Can I fanboy for one more second, Tim, before before sure. we go to that? Because um, I, I remember, I you know, I read your your background. You, you had a classics degree from Harvard. I, I'm just curious. In in the early days when you founded O'Reilly Books, did did you think it would be such a big deal that it would be this kind of like institution in tech, or was it like this crazy LARP of like I don't know, this seems cool. What what, what did you think would happen? Uh, you know, I didn't really have a plan. Uh, my original business plan was interesting work for interesting people. And I didn't want to have a job. I wanted to try to make something happen. And I just tried a lot of things. My, my original business was a tech writing consulting company. Uh, I had a, a, a friend who was a programmer who got asked to write a manual and he didn't know, uh, he didn't know whether he could pull it off. I was a writer who didn't know anything about computers and we went into business together. <laughs> And it worked uh, kind of magically because uh, uh, the classics background actually kind of helped because I was um, good at parsing things that were, you know, sort of literally Greek to me. <laughs> and uh, and so I'm, I'm looking at these, you know, these, you know, specs and so on. This is in, in the uh, uh, early uh, early 80s, you know, on, on uh, you know, uh, computer uh, software and, and and programming again. You know, when I started out, they were uh, you know the very first manual I worked on was assembly uh, an assembly language manual for a, a data acquisition uh, board in a in a in a uh, an early workstation. <laughs> you know, so uh, um, called the LPA 11K Laboratory Peripheral Accelerator, and it was for Digital Equipment Corporation. So. But you know, so I just I, I kind of learned uh, by pattern recognition, and I think that was uh, a strength that I'd gotten, you know, in you know reading Greek and Latin texts in a lot of ways. And I had a friend who was, you know, basically a programmer, and he was trying to figure out how to express things, and I would just talk to him, and and uh, together we would figure it out. After three or four years, he never did learn to write, and I got fascinated by computers. So that was uh, that was that. Uh, but we, we, we sort of just uh, the book publishing really came in the mid 80s when we had a, a downturn in our, our um, consulting business at the same time as I was starting to see that we were was a pattern in people looking for manuals on the same topics because software was becoming standardized, particularly in the world around Unix. 
And so we just started uh, writing manuals in our spare time for things that we thought needed them that didn't have them. And it's amazing how you've always managed to somehow recruit kind of like the key text or the key person. Like I recently, somebody online asked about, you know, how to learn Jupyter Notebooks and Python and data science. And I'm like, well, the O'Reilly book is written by the guy who created Pandas, which is like the leading framework for doing a lot of data analysis in Python. Why don't you just get that book, right? And somehow the O'Reilly version, I mean, there's, there's a lot of industry books that like teach you a certain technology, but somehow the O'Reilly book is always kind of like the classic best one that persists as a classic. Again, I, I feel like I'm fanboying again, Tim, but, I, I, but it's well, really uh, amazing to me how thanks. successful so you've it, been. It, it is, you know, it, it helps that we're, you know, that we're pretty deep into the technology ourselves. Um, as opposed to, uh, you know, our competitors over the years often were just, you know, they were publishing people, you know, <laughs> and, uh, uh, you know, whereas we were, we, we, you know, we were, we were into the tech and uh, still are. My last question there, how have you not run out of animals to put on the cover? Because at this point, it must be thousands of titles. Yeah, uh, you know, uh, we... There's a lot of animals in this world. <laughs> and, uh, and, and in the 19th century, uh, you know, uh, they did illustrations rather than photography. And a lot of those things were in the public domain. We've also actually commissioned some over the years. Uh, but uh, we have big libraries of, uh, you know, 19th century uh, zoology books. <laughs> Okay, that was that was my suspicion that at some point, like you ran out of whatever set from some like 19th century British encyclopedia or whatever, and and you had to start commissioning them because it seemed as if there was too many. I, I assume, Tim, you've seen uh, the sort of lovingly parodic memes of the O'Reilly book, right? Of like, you know, oh, developers. Totally. Oh, you, oh, you have seen those, right? I mean, aren't, aren't those yeah. kind of funny? Oh, oh really? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh, really? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um, which of course, again, just is a salute to how like those memes wouldn't work if everyone, you know, didn't obviously recognize an O'Reilly book for what it is, right? Um, so um, great. So let, let's everybody, talk about everybody of a certain age. Let's put it that way. <laughs> uh, true, true. It, it might it might be generational. Although again, I, you know, just recently somebody very much working in the field who's not particularly old asked a question, and the best book they could use is is one of your books. So speaking no, of books, you, but um, there, there is this thing, uh, this great line that's always worth remembering from Stan Robinson in, in one of his uh, science fiction books, the Mars Trilogy, uh, uh, where he said, uh, is a wave that moves through time slightly faster than we do. <laughs> Damn it. And you quote that in your book, in fact, somewhere. I recall you quoting that somewhere inside your book. I, pro I probably I probably do. Yeah. yeah. I, um, I love Stan. He's 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 a real uh, uh, wonder of this world. So so let's get to your book. I, as you reminded me, it's funny. I think I realized that the reason why I thought your book came out recently is because speaking of waves of the past passing you, I think we had we were originally put into contact closer to the date of the launch of your book. So in my mind, this you're still on book tour, even though of course our first contact I think was like months ago. <laughs> um, uh, but so yeah, the, the book is WTF with a question mark. And, you know, you open it um, with kind of evoking a feeling that I also kind of feel, which is like uh, in, in the chapter, seeing the future in the present and then the, the WTF economy, which is like, I, I think you're probably, you know, you, you are a bit older than me, but we're still kind of of that bridge generation that was raised in an analog world and then very quickly adapted to yeah. a full online digital world. So like, we're, you know, we're yeah. just as home in both, but something about having like sent a letter, right? Or like seeing a fax machine buzz and think that cool and cutting edge, what now seems ridiculously prehistoric. There's something magic yeah. about that generation that I think we're never, well, ab th that's ab it. Absolutely. If you, if you, you know, pe people don't, uh, you know, it, you don't understand how magical new technology feels when it first comes in. I still remember when we first demoed uh, the World Wide Web to people at trade shows and, uh, um, I guess it would have been 1993, and they were just astonished. You know, they, 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 they you know, you, they had seen hypertext. You know, there were there were CD-ROM based encyclopedias like Encarta and the Cinemania, Microsoft's uh, movie encyclopedia, but they were all local. And this idea that you know, you would say, you know, you clicked on this, and this document just came from Hawaii. 
you know, from somebody at the University of Hawaii, and they go, no, 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 that doesn't make sense, you know? <laughs> and and uh, they also couldn't tell the difference between the browser, the piece of software, and the document inside of it. And I actually wrote a, an article in 1997 called Hardware, Software, and Infoware, where I was talking about the web as really the next generation of computing, because it was, for the first time, you had human text that had embedded actions in it, you know, as opposed to, you know, in the in you know in, in a software application, say like Microsoft Word or you know, um, Excel, you have little bits of human language embedded in software code. You know, suddenly the, in this next generation, you have, um, you know, this human readable document, and and actions are are loaded through it, whether it's a simple action of just clicking on a link and going somewhere else, but eventually, you know, gateways to entire applications. But they were written in, in sort of human language space. And I think that idea has really continued. You know, there was a, uh, a bl long blog post, uh, uh, medium post just the other day by Blaise Aguera Iarcas uh, at Google. He runs the Android uh, uh, AI group. And uh, he's been, you know, working a lot with uh, uh, Lambda, the, one of the large language models that Google's working on. And he's doing a lot of deep philosophizing about, you know, what we learn. And he's really talking about uh, tra bias training or anti-bias training and how you can actually continue to interact with and train the model by telling it, you know, rather than saying, well, we have to somehow keep it from, uh, you know, being exposed to, uh, you know, say, anti-Semitic uh, uh, content. You know, you can actually talk to it and teach it that this is inappropriate, just like you would with a child. <laughs> you know? and, and, and oh my god, that's this whole other level. You know, here are these conversational large language models that you're actually continuing to program just by talking with them. I mean, this is like, you know, this is the thing, the long arc, I think, of computing is you know, to bring the interface closer and closer to humans. You know, you know, you think back at those original, the very first computing where literally the programmers, a set of women, you know, were, were literally uh, setting up a stored program by plugging cables into a plug board on the front of the machine. And then this big advance where you had binary switches, you know. Uh, yeah, I mean, the first generation, they literally were wiring a new computer for every program. And then yeah, and, uh, the, and store, the stored program computer with, with binary switches, and then it became paper tape and, and punch cards. And, and, and then we had CRTs where you could type in a program. And then, uh, you, know, you know, but there was, you know, sort of low level stuff like assembler. Uh, and then we got high level languages. And then we got up to this, you know, uh, world we're in today with scripting languages, which are late binding and and uh, you know don't don't have to be compiled, and and then you have layers like HTML, and now you have this new thing that's happening with AI, uh, which is truly remarkable. I, I was going to interject. Not only did you have cables, I mean, you actually had. The original bug was, in fact, the physical bug <laughs> in the machine yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, as a yeah. piece of computer. So I think it was Grace Hopper even who, in the original ENIAC, in the logs, actually like pasted in the moth that had come yeah. to the vacuum tube and it actually shorted something together, um, which is an amazing story. <laughs> it sounds made up, yeah. but actually it's not. Like I've seen a photo of the journal, like it actually exists. <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, uh, George Dyson's book, uh, Turing's Cathedral, is full of these amazing stories of early computing. Uh, it, it's, it's really a remarkable work. Yeah, no, I mean, again, that's, that's, and we're going to sound like old farts, Tim, but it, you know, I'm, I'm actually not that old in the scheme of things. Like this wasn't that long ago that a letter was the fastest way to get a message across the United States of America, right? The, the fastest normal way without paying a small fortune. Um, and if, in fact, I think that's, that's kind of a tangent, but one of the, the great things that has happened or great or just. Titanic things that has happened is the decoupling of information flowing from physical materials flowing, right? Like it's, it's part of what I think is affecting our politics and everything else that it's weird to be talking into this phone and being connected via wormhole to you or anybody else in the globe, but like not actually yeah. having a social connection 
to the people that I'm looking outside the window who seem to be redoing their plumbing in front of their house. Um, it's uh, well, it's an odd it's world. It's interesting, uh, you know, in that regard, just jumping towards something I just wrote recently. I, uh, you know, I, I, I just wrote a piece called uh, uh, The Metaverse is Not a Place. And it's really a reflection on this idea that the central thread of internet computing is is communications. And if you, you know, in a lot of ways, it's much more productive to think of the metaverse as a successor to Zoom than it is to think of it as a successor to Second Life. I see. You you reject the characterization as the metaverse as being a virtual place that we're going to congregate in. I guess is that. Yeah, that and, and, and it's really this idea of the space between, you know, like if you think about this interaction, we're, it, it's a different kind of place. It's a place that's, uh, you know, that, that's set up and torn down uh, every time a new set of people uh, come in. You know, you and I are kind of meeting in this nowhere that is somewhere, you know, between the two of us. And the example I use in the in in the book of a kind of like a, a, a real metaverse prototype in a certain way is uh, um, every morning my wife and I uh, uh, do an exercise regime with a friend who has a Peloton subscription, and uh, you know Peloton isn't just bikes; they also do strength training, and we do we do and they have a lot of it is recorded. I, I call it stored time as opposed to real time. You know, so they have these stored time interactions with their instructors. And so our friend shares her screen. And, you know, if you think about it, there's five people together in this, uh, you know, this sh shared space for an hour, you know, where we're the two instructors. We do a strength training with this guy named Rad Lopez. And, and then we do uh, abs with Robin Arzon. And, uh, you know, the, the three of us are live and the two of them are stored. And you could also then imagine, oh, wait, those, they could be the equivalent of what gamers call NPCs, non-player characters, i.e. AIs in the interaction. But they're going to be much more like that, you know, where we're, we're, we're putting together a, a shared space for purposes of communicating. You know, like a Zoom isn't a place. You know, uh, uh, a Microsoft Teams meeting, or you know, uh, you know, uh, you know, a Google communication, or or a WhatsApp call, are not places. They're they're in the space between, and I think in a similar way, we have to understand that the, the metaverse is going to be much more like that, much more dynamic than the real estate kind of metaphor would suggest, you know, where this, this sort of empty space is waiting for people to show up. Yeah, no, I, I agree with that, right? I mean, I think the metaphor there obviously is like Second Life, which is the metaverse before before there, yeah. it was called that, or at least sort of publicly called that. Um, you know, it, it's funny, one, one quote you, you mentioned in your book that I thought was interesting, I think you were quoting Eric Schmidt possibly that said, you know, or, or maybe it was actually Halvarian or Carl Shapiro, but no, it was Halvarian. Uh, you know, look how the rich live, and that's what the future looks like. Um, oh, that's, and that's it's Halvarian, yeah. Halvarian, yeah. And it's, yeah, it's it, he's an it, interesting it, character. Go ahead. Yeah, I, I have to say, this, uh, yeah, he, he's, uh, it sounds incredibly uh, inappropriate, you know, in a certain way, you know, like, oh my God, just look at how rich people live. But it's so true, you know, you, you, you know, uh, rich people had cell phones a long time before regular people did, but everybody eventually got them. Rich people had toilets before everybody did. Uh, and now, uh, you know, uh, a great many people have, you know, rich people had uh, silverware, you know, rich people had tools of various kinds. And so, you know, I think that is in fact part of the progress of, of uh, civilization is that the, the, the things that rich people once were the only people who got them, everybody gets them. And I think that's one of the things that we should be looking forward to. And it is one of the themes of, of my book, you know, is that, you know, we could have an economy of abundance and asking ourselves why we don't, you know, what's keeping us from, um, 
you know, from, from you know, as I think I, I said in the book, uh, there's plenty to go around. It's just not going around. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely true, right? I mean, almost every consumer fortune has been taking what was a luxury product and democratizing it to every American consumer, right? Which makes a certain that's right. That's right. Ca capitalist sense. And yeah, and, and getting to the and getting you know getting to the business of the metaverse and whether it's real. I mean, I, you know, I've had a number of conversations recently. I, I interviewed two weeks ago, or no, I guess a month now. Uh, Balaji Srinivasan, who you might know, he wrote a book called The Network okay. State. Um, and, and then I interviewed um, Dryden Brown, who's the founder of Praxis Society, which is this interesting sort of startup nation the week after. And, you know, both of them are trying to create a kind of new state. But again, they're very clear that it's not a metaverse production, right? This isn't a VR headset thing. Um, they're, they're very insistent on, not, on it being an IRL state with borders and UN representation and all the rest of it. It may not function like your sort of conventional ethno nation state but nonetheless they insist on a, a real life to it and you know recently i've been thinking so recently as a side thing i raised money for a startup and obviously you have to think about company culture hiring in person and you know in real life work versus zoom and it's intriguing how a lot of people again getting back to the the wealthier at least the, the the tech and 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 you know people enabled with agency who can run their companies how they want and they're doing it they're not doing a full metaverse zoom production right they often have i mean a16z more or less said this is how they're doing it they're going to have points of presence around the globe. The team's going to be anywhere, but they're going to, you know, constantly coalesce on these sort of focus points to actually do in real life work. And I realized that's how I live my life, right? Like half my circle, I don't even know where they live. We just meet at these sort of centers of gravity, be it in San Francisco or LA or Austin or Miami, which again, feels very jet set, although it's not really that jet city, but you know, that could, again, how the rich people live, live is the future. That could be the future for a lot more Americans going forward. Yeah. I mean, I have to say, you know, obviously there's also William Gibson's for formulation, the future is here, it's just not evenly distributed yet. And that, that sort of doesn't have the, the, the negative connotations of, well, the rich people get to have it first. Uh, because it, it isn't always just that the rich people have it first. It's, it's really, uh, there are some people who are living in, in the future, you know, like think about open source software, you know, and the internet, there were a bunch of geeks who were living in the future. It wasn't rich people, it was geeks, you know? <laughs> Right. Uh, you know, and, uh, and there's people now who are living in the future because they, um, they were the first to, um, you know, kind of grok a new way, the, the, the new possibilities that were inherent in, in, in certain ways of living. Yeah, 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 no, that, that's, that's definitely true. Um, yeah, I mean, that's, you know, a lot of the arguments for like crypto and Web3, it's like, well, what are the smart, what are the smart geeks doing on their nights and weekends? Well, crypto. <laughs> and, you know, what, what were the smart geeks doing in their nights and weekends in the late 90s? Well, the first web, <laughs> right? And so um, not that every argument by, by historical parallel is, you know, is right. But, yeah. Um, yeah, but, but, you know, one thing, one thing you get into your book, which I thought was interesting, and one thing that's kind of in the general zeitgeist, you know, when it comes to like, some of what your book teach, you know, deals with is like anxiety about the future, right? And one of the avenues of anxiety is obviously inequality, right? And, you know, it, you know, Andrew Yang, for example, who's still going, goes on and on about UBI and people being out of jobs. And you, your view, which I think is more in line with my view, is that, well, uh, yes and no, right? On the, on the one hand, things can get automated. doesn't mean the unemployment rate will be high, although it's worth noting that the labor participation rate is one of the lowest that it's been in a very long time. And so unemployment is low, but that's among people who are still seeking jobs. There's a, the, the participation well, rate. Connect though, though, I think there's just this assumption that the future will be like the present. And, and you know, kind of going back to the very beginning of the book, which is really about how, how to think about the future. You, know, you first have to get that it's not going to be the same. It's not going to be a direct continuation of what we see today. And people forget that. It's very easy to forget. Um, and so, you know, when I think about, um, you know, this future uh, of, of more automation, first off, there's this thing that uh, Clay Christensen, the famous business you know, writer and business school professor, uh, called the law of conservation of attractive products, which is that when one thing becomes a commodity, something else becomes valuable. And I intersected with Clay on, uh, around uh, this in terms of my sort of alternate history of the computer industry where, you know, uh, hardware was valuable 
and software was you know not very valuable at the time. It just kind of went along with the computer, and then hardware became a commodity with this you know this IBM PC, and suddenly Microsoft figured out how to make software valuable again, and then along comes you know Linux and uh, the open protocols of the internet and the World Wide Web, and suddenly uh, you know we're commoditizing software. You can't make money selling software anymore because there's so much free software around. And they, you know, and I was back when I wrote What is Web 2.0 in 2005, I was saying, hey, something else is going to become valuable. I think it's going to be data, you know. And so here we were in this new age where, you know, there was a new way for people to extract, you know, what Clay called attractive profits. And I think, I think we're in the, I actually think we're in an interesting period where I, I, I kind of think that, that history might be repeating itself a little bit because of the uh, of large language models, which you know, uh, embody so much of the knowledge that you know just is locked up in a place like Google, um, and suddenly you know they're commoditizing and making that knowledge available in a whole new way, and that's super exciting. I, I think. Uh, uh, they are the thing, you know, I think the most disruptive thing that's happening out there. And people are all getting wrapped up in a knot about whether they're truly intelligent or not. And I guess I would say they don't have to be intelligent to be incredibly disruptive. <laughs> you know, we see yeah, I mean, something like, like GitHub Copilot, which can effectively, uh, you know, I think uh, the CEO of GitHub told me that, you know, a, a third of all, all was it a third? Very large proportion of all code contributed to GitHub is now written with the aid of Copilot. It's it's freaking crazy. Interesting. You know, it's funny. I've, I've actually never used. It. I, I assume you were you were obliquely referring to the Google engineer who thought that uh, a language model was sentient, which was kind of like the howler of the. I guess for about a week, and then unfortunately, I guess I mean there is like a serious side to it. I guess he got he got fired by Google. Um, but. Um, yeah, I mean, <laughs> I think I joke tweeted that I'm like, are computers getting smarter or are we getting dumber, right? Because like the Turing test can be passed either way. <laughs> it's it's not well, just I, about, I, I, yeah. I have a, a, a sort of a different, I wasn't specifically referring to Blake Lemoyne. I, I do think that the, you know, there's a general um, tendency for people immediately to go into this whole debate about, well, these things aren't really intelligent. They're stochastic parrots. Yeah, they're just, you know, and I go, so what? You know, and what I find particularly interesting is I'm on a mailing list right, where, where this discussion is going on. And here's this, this guy, uh, you know, Blaze, I mentioned earlier, had posted this um, Medium post about some of the work with Lambda. And I'm looking at this and I go, this is cutting edge work from the frontiers of, of, of where somebody is deeply interacting with and training a large language model. And there's all these people on the list who instead of saying, whoa, tell me more, I gotta learn more about this. This is like, you know, this is like, hey, somebody's talking to dolphins or whatever, you know? And, and I don't know what that means. I don't know how it works. What is it actually, you know, what can we learn from it? And instead, people are parroting all this stuff. Well, I read, you know, it's like effectively what they've read or these opinions. Like, oh my God, humans are stochastic parrots too. You know, so our critique of these large language models is that they're not actually thinking. That's true of 90% of humans too. <laughs> That's surprisingly cynical, that, Tim. <laughs> the number of times that people are actually awake and looking at things with fresh eyes instead of just parroting back what they've heard or, you know, it's, uh, you know, you think about politics, you know, like our politics is all, you know, uh, you know, basically, it's just like you can, you know, pollute the training space of a bot, you know, they're polluting the training space of humans. And people are saying, well, this thing is true, which isn't because somebody just stuck it into the, their input space and they just spout it right back out. They don't actually look, they don't try to verify, they don't try to understand whether it could possibly be true. They just accept it and, and spout it back. I mean, and I think our, our level of self-awareness is so small. Yeah, I mean, yeah. yeah. My, my view here, I, there's, a, there's a quote from Dijkstra of, of 
famous Dijkstra's algorithm that we all learned in our first algo course or whatever, that, you know, he said, you know, this question of like, do computers think is like asking whether a submarine swims? It's like, it doesn't, it doesn't matter. The thing is the thing can do, you know, the thing can move to the water at 20 knots, which a human cannot, <laughs> or, or the computer can fit a linear model uh, in milliseconds in a way that humans cannot. And that's, it doesn't really, it, that's my take on it. And maybe I'm being slightly Luddite well, in my also, second. I think this huge category error in most discussions of AI, where people are saying, oh, it's not really intelligent. And what they really mean is it doesn't have any volition. Right. So it, it, you know, the thing that we're missing is not artificial intelligence. We have artificial intelligence, quite complex and powerful artificial intelligence. We have no artificial volition, a machine that can decide on its own that it wants to do something. And, and, and yet, like, that's just not what's discussed. You know, the fact is, this thing, these things are really smart. They do it differently than we do, just like the dog does things differently than we do. I mean, I, I sometimes, you know, I sometimes have gotten down on my hands and knees and sniffed the ground where my dog is sniffing to say, I wonder if I can smell what's so interesting there. And no, I can't at all, right? I guess I'm so stupid, right? <laughs> you know, from the point of view of my dog, like, dude, you're missing so much. And they go, so these, you know, these bots, they can't do certain things that we do, but they can do certain things that we do really well, much faster. They can do some things that we can't do at all. And, but they, what they don't have at all is any independent volition. Right. And when you say volition, I think what's also implied yeah, when people have, bring that up, it's, it's also moral agency, right? The fact that like, for example, in the, in the Lemoyne case, uh, it sounded like almost like Hal 1000 telling Dave not to shut it down, right? And this is like, yeah. oh, I'm real. And, and, you know, the deal was that he wanted the, he wanted the algo to actually have lawyers and Google's like, no, this is crazy. Um, but, you know, if, if you give something volition, you, it has moral agency, it, you know, then it, it I, I mean, if you go back to the Judeo-Christian roots, then it's made in the image of God. It, you know, we can't just kill this thing, right? And, and, and it's funny, you, you, do, you, do, you do see that sort of that conundrum in many places, I mean, it sounds kind of random, but for example, in the kill loop with drones for the Air Force, for example, there's always a human that in some sense, I mean, either literally or figuratively goes ahead and pulls the trigger. It's never a full AI loop, right? Because a computer doesn't have moral agency. And it has to have, even if the human's sitting in an air-conditioned container uh, in Henderson, Nevada, which is in fact where a lot of them are, and the, the, killing, the thing is happening on the other side of the world, there has to be a human there because we're not willing to assign moral agents to a computer yet. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, well, one of the other interesting things that uh, 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 Blaze talks about in his, uh, is also he makes a distinction, which I think comes from um, uh, Joanna Bryson uh, originally, which is, is the difference between uh, agency and, and what, what he calls patiency, the ability to, to suffer, um, which I think is super interesting because his whole point in this article he wrote is that you can, in fact, uh, train uh, one of these models to have what seem to be moral values. You know, and again, we have to, you know, there's certainly some moral values that seem to be innate in humans, but there's also certainly ones that are, you know, trained. And so the, the kind of interesting question here is, but anyway, he says, so even if we can train them to be moral agents, you know, even, even if it's not, it's not, it's not, you know, independent volition, they, they still can make moral decisions. They can't actually suffer moral consequence. You know, like they don't hurt, you know, I mean, like, you, yeah. Um, and so there's a whole bunch of nuance in that discussion that is so often missing, I guess I would just say. And it's, uh, it's super interesting to me to uh, broaden it out. Anyway. We're all over the place here in this conversation. <laughs> <laughs> we are over the place. Let me go back to my notes on your book. because I, I did have some specific questions and, or sections of your book that I wanted to get to. Um, so we're probably not going to get through all of them. But, um, you know, one thing that, that you touch on, which is something that's been, I used to get into these debates and it drove me so crazy. I actually went back to tech. It actually drove me out of media. Um, the business of like media and algorithms and what is truth, which of course you're quoting Pontius Pilate. Um, and... Uh, you know, from what I gathered, you know, views here span the gamut. And at this point, I, I don't have strong public views about it anymore. But you seem to think that, you know, some notion of of, of truth and fact checking 
that you should temper the algorithmic ramping, ranking with the sort of human touch. Um, and, and, you, and you kind of ruminate a little bit on how the business model is changing might also change the incentive here. I, I, I guess I think more than anything else, uh, I, I do think that, that uh, you know, models are trainable. Uh, and 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 the, the history of um, you know algorithmic systems you know like Google search or uh, you know ad matching or whatever you know it is uh, they've gotten incredibly sophisticated uh, th they are in fact though in an adversarial market where people are trying to manipulate them negatively as as are you know Facebook news feeds and the like but they are perfectible and um, I do think we have to get better at comparing, you know, what are we comparing them to? You know, I mean, you know, there's, there's things, for example, you talk about algorithmic sentencing and they go, okay, yeah, but there's bias in, in algorithmic sentencing. They go, well, so there's bias in human judges. You know, the downside of, of algorithmic sentencing, you know, with, um, is that if you get it wrong, you get it wrong for everybody, you know? Uh, you know, whereas the the impact of a single bad judge is is somewhat limited, unless they happen to be at the Supreme Court. Uh, <laughs> um, but um, uh, but but the, the the benefit is that you know you know all the, the the cases of bias that get talked about have been discovered and they get fixed. You know, so I think, you know, I like to say a lot of times AI is a mirror, not a master. And to the extent that it can show us our biases, that's progress. You know, like we, we give it a whole bunch of training data and we go, wow, there's something wrong with this. It's biased. And we're, why is it biased? We go, oh, shit, because we showed it how humans have been acting. You know, and, and, and so I think we're at this wonderful moment where, you know, AI is this wonderful you know, tool for helping us understand uh, humans better. Yeah, that, I mean, that's that's an interesting topic. It's a big hairy one, right? In that, <laughs> I, I don't know, I should probably do a deeper dive on it, but it seems a lot, a lot of the claim, like often the model, often a lot of these claims don't hinge on the model's correctness, right? On the contrary, no one claims the model's incorrect, merely that it's returning results that we consider it to be socially maladaptive or negative, right? We're yeah, exactly. in some sense imposing a moral judgment on the result. Like no one's actually saying the model's broken. What they're saying is, well, we don't like the results of the model. And we think a society in which the model just doesn't just chug along without any opinions is a good one. So we're going to put our finger on the scale, right? And I think that's where right, right. some I, AI I, purists I, would reject. Right. I think we're in this wonderful period where we, uh, where there's a lot changing. And when a lot's changing, you know, bad things happen and good things happen. And, and we need to put our shoulders to the wheel and get more of the good and less of the bad. That's pretty straightforward. But, well, but I think where the problem comes in, and you see this a lot, right? Because again, we're in a society with like capital S science, you know, TM in which, you know, the science is often invoked to justify what I think is often a, a sort of metaphysical argument, right? Like. Yeah. You know, we should we should morally prioritize X rather than some paper with N equals four. You know, four, you know, says that my claim about reality is true. And I think you know, I'm as, as empirical as the next guy. I spent too many years in a physics lab, but there's there's many questions that science actually cannot and, and will not ever answer. And it's it's yeah. I don't know. It seems like we have a paucity of of the language and philosophy to actually discuss with ourselves. You know, in, in the case of just to cite a particularly non-controversial example, COVID response. Well. Do we prioritize the well-being of X group or Y group in our COVID response? And somehow we never had that conversation in a serious way. And instead it all came down to the science says. Um, and it's funny because a society that doesn't have a good metaphysical culture kind of starts sucking even at empiricism because they have to skew reality in order to make what are fundamentally metaphysical arguments, right? I, Which I, is, I, to I totally agree with that. You know, and the other thing I guess I would just say, and this is sort of a central point of the book uh, is that you know we have so much to learn by looking at what tech teaches us about society and so for example you know one of the big themes in the book is I, I look at the out of control algorithms that say Facebook and uh, you know and, and, and really trace back the problems to this you know this idea which is 
you know, talked about a lot in the AI literature, probably most famously by Nick Bostrom in, in his book, where he kind of talked about the paperclip maximizer, you know, the, the existential risk of AI being given, you know, a goal that it works on so single-mindedly that it forgets everything else, you know? So, you know, make more paper clips and it goes wild and it improves itself and gets smarter and smarter and eventually it just discovers that humans are in the way. Elon Musk made a version of the same argument where it was a strawberry picking robot, you know, that decides that it wants strawberry fields forever, right? And, you know, I go, yeah, we've already built one of those. It's called financial markets. You know, where they say, yeah, the thing we're optimizing for relentlessly is corporate profit. And, and, and that's a real problem. We have a machine that does have an objective function. And I think there's a, there's a, a big idea that's in the book that's, that's uh, deeply in, related to that, which is that I think we're looking in a lot of ways in the wrong place for AI. We think of it as a, a, like a, a unitary intelligence, like an individual human. And, uh, you know, and I think we even have this wrong about humans. But what if it's a, a, a you know, like a, 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 a tribal intelligence, a, a group intelligence? You know, that's kind of what we see. You know, like Twitter is weaving all its users into a single kind of intelligence. You know, there's some news and now it propagates across, you know, uh, hundreds of millions of users. You know, somebody puts a bad idea into the Facebook newsfeed and suddenly, you know, 100 million people believe it. You know, this is kind of like a, a, a very different kind of thing. And I think our financial markets, in a lot of ways, are the furthest along of these kinds of collective AIs that are these feedback loops that are algorithmically, with algorithmic amplification, subject to manipulation, uh, but they also are subject to the wisdom of crowds. You know, so we have this battle going on, just like we have inside our own, you know, individual minds. But, you know, where, you know, we, we're really building these collective intelligences. And these collective intelligences, one of the ways they go wrong is if they have some overriding goal that is the wrong goal. And so if, for example, we're worried about, you know, hostile AI, that's the first thing we should worry about, that we told the first global AI that we're building, i.e. electronic financial markets, that they should be optimizing for making money, you know, and, and as opposed to maximizing human happiness, maximizing human well-being. And that's really kind of the central point of the book. It's like uh, this long, at first, you know, I have the first section of the book is how to think about the future. And then I talk about the idea that we're building, you know, these, these sort of internet scale platforms, and they're platforms for collective intelligence. And then this whole section of this argument from algorithms and how, how AI, and again, this is, is, you know, actually I wrote this five years ago, but how, you know, how these systems are, are built and where they're going and everything I wrote in there is even more true today. And then what does that mean for our society? And, and, and if our economy is, you know, is this product of a set of algorithms, you know, and, and some of those algorithms are in, you know, the financial markets, but some of them are in things like the tax code. You know, and you can see, you know, how the tax code is, is market shaping. You know, why does Europe have small cars and, uh, you know, the U.S. have big cars? Oh, well, one reason is that Europe has, you know, high gas taxes. You know, uh, Germany discourages home ownership, so they have a much higher level of renting. You know, there's all kinds of ways that these things get put in to, to you know, tax code or, or, or um, legislation. Why do, you know, California cities have, uh, you know, no affordable housing despite the, des the, the stated desire of humans? Well, it's because of, of, of building codes, which are basically the equivalent of things that are you know, like if you were to draw the analogy between the Facebook news feed, you go, well, why would they be promoting this thing that's so clearly bad? Well, somebody put it in there. And I think, you know, we have that same problem in our society where there's all these things that are not what we want that are in the model, that are in the algorithm. And we have to use the opportunity to debug our, our models and say, are they giving us what we want? 
people? Are they just giving us what somebody put in there? And is it a bad actor who put it in there? Or was it just ignorance? Or how did that happen? Well, I mean, that's another exa example, Tim, I think, where, you know, the, 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 the economic empirical system is, is capitalism and markets that you're highlighting, right? And so much discussion, even people that you would think would be typically pro-capitalism, often question the outcome that a market would necessarily yield. And then the only instrument that's sort of left now that religion isn't really a, a cultural, you know, isn't really a factor, culture itself isn't really a factor, the government's the only sort of entity left that has some ability to actually, you know, skew the market one way or the other. And so, I mean, again, even like Peter Thiel's famous lament that like, where, where are the flying cars? Instead, we got 140 characters. That's also lamenting the fact that, frankly, from the VC perspective, betting on the next Internet consumer app is probably a wiser move than it is betting on flying cars. Right. Right? But just... I, I would also make the case that that, uh, you know, these collective intelligence applications like Twitter, like Google, like Facebook are actually way more interesting than flying cars. I mean, come on. We have we've brought hundreds of millions of people into a shared near instantaneous mind space. I mean, come on. I mean, that's kind of oh. like saying, oh, my God, they promised us, you know, uh, you know, the, you know, they promised us, uh, you know, I don't know what you would say in the Renaissance. You know, they promised us uh, uh, that we'd all have, uh, uh, you know, silverware like, uh, you know, King Louis. You know, or whatever, or, or we'd all have uh, you know paintings on our walls like uh, you know the Pope, you know, and and all we got was the book, you know. <laughs> right. Uh, right. Uh, uh, you know, give me a break. Would you rather which which one of these things would be was more important? You know, so, so well, I just think Peter Thiel. That it's just it's just sort of like so many things. You know, there's something that sounds good, but if you examine it a little more closely, you go, does that actually make sense? Which, of course, is back around to my thing about humans as stochastic parrots. How many people actually think about the things that they hear before just going, yeah, that sounds good, and repeating it back? Yeah, no, I mean, I've often joked that if you were to ask a, a European peasant in 1618 whether the printing press was a good idea, the answer probably would have been mostly no, <laughs> right? Go, because, of course... Yeah, oh, my God, what does it matter? I mean, a bunch of... You know, it's like all these these uh, you know these monks get uh, they don't have to write their books out anymore. Well, not only that, it was it was negative, right? At the time, yeah. the Thirty Years' War was about to kick off, which was the most violent European war until World War One. It seemed like a huge source of disruption and turmoil and, and fragmentation, and just yeah, we should we should ban books. Books are bad. <laughs> well, I will good. also point out, uh, you know, Amanda Palmer, who is a, a Renaissance historian as well as a uh, as a science fiction author. Uh, likes to make the point that the book uh, actually was the source of a massive amount of uh, warfare. I mean, it, it, the Thirty Years' War was a consequence of, uh, in many ways, of the democratization of, of uh, the spread of knowledge via books. Oh, absolutely. I mean, the spread of what we consider to be enlightenment knowledge has been hand in hand with the development of the motor. I mean, the, the Prussian Academy of Sciences was founded to help the Prussian war effort, <laughs> I mean, no, which no. Einstein later ended up joining. I mean, yeah, yeah, no, no question. Um, okay, Tim, I mean, we're, we're almost at the top of, uh, at the top of the hour. We've managed to cover a surprising amount of ground despite, uh, both of, both of the tangents that we, uh, went off on. Um, yeah, I mean, thanks, thanks for joining. So what are you up to these days, Tim, other than, I mean, I assume you're still involved with O'Reilly Books. Is there something else that you're involved with or another venture you're yeah, starting yeah, that I, you I, feel strong about? Yeah, I, I'm, I'm uh, doing a bunch of work with uh, Mariana Masakato at the Institute for uh, Innovation and Public Purpose at University College London, where I'm a visiting professor. And we're doing a lot of research on uh, uh, basically thinking about different approaches to um, you know, big tech and monopoly. And, and a lot of it, I, I, for me, is focusing on the, the idea of, uh, you know, algorithmically managed market. Basically, Google and Amazon and the like are actually running an invisible hand. You know, I've been thinking a lot about economics, you know, thinking about tech in, in economic terms, uh, you know, an algorithmic invisible hand. And they have to get good at it. And what, what you see instead is that they basically have gone from uh, this collective intelligence approach where both Google and Amazon really focused on what was best for their users and what, what did everybody think the best site or the best product. 
And where are they today? They're featuring their own products, they're featuring ads, whatever people are willing to pay for. And uh, you know, Facebook is supposedly saying we're, we're gonna try to show people things that will build community and instead they're showing things that make them the most money. You know, so effectively we have uh, what I'm calling algorithmic rents. You know, people are using algorithms to extract money from people rather than uh, actually creating value. And this is a big step backwards from the early days of the internet. And I'm trying to, first of all, I mean, there's this possible, there is, is some advice to antitrust regulators in the things I'm writing here. But a lot of what I'm really trying to, who, you know, somebody asked me the other day, who are you really writing this for? And I said, I'm really writing it for the CEOs of these companies because I know they'll read it and I hope they think about it. And, uh, I have a lot of experiences from the past where I've written things and I have shaped how people think. And I think this, I, this imperative to run a balanced marketplace, you know, a balanced ecosystem that supports you know, you know, your suppliers as well as your users and doesn't take too much for yourself, uh, you know, it, you know, really is just like everything else in, in, in ecology. Uh, you know, running a balanced ecosystem is hard but we have the tools to do it now. And, and, and in some sense, you know, the ecosystems of these big tech companies are uh, kind of like pilot projects for uh, an algorithmically managed economy that could be uh, aimed to create prosperity for everyone. And that's really, again, a big theme in that book. And you know, I've been continuing down the path of, 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 of telling that story. And I spent a lot of time on that at O'Reilly. You know, like how do we build a, an ecosystem that encourages, uh, you know, people to keep creating? Uh, how do we build an encouragement that rewards people appropriately? It creates the right incentives. You know, because you know we're running an economy. It's a lot smaller than, you know, Amazon's or Google's. But at O'Reilly, we're also running an algorithmic economy on our on our platform. And, and so I'm trying to say, how do we get good at this? How do we incent the right behaviors? How do we reward the right people? How do we make sure that that uh, more good stuff gets created than bad stuff? Anyway, that's a probably a good place to to wrap. That's the challenge well, thank, for all of us. <laughs> well, thank thanks, Tim. I mean, you know, again, I'm going to fanboy here a little bit at the end, like I did at the beginning. I mean, pe people like you and and Stuart Brand and a few other names you can name are, are like so much. I think the corporate speak for it would be the culture carrier, for, right? For the Silicon Valley that I think created a lot of what we see around us. And, and again, I, I think Silicon Valley has become such a big hairy beast that there's now lots of cultures within that culture. But it, to me, it's like a breath of optimistic fresh air, <laughs> what you just said, compared to a lot of the discourse around tech these days. Well, thanks a lot. Appreciate that. Thank, uh, well, thanks for coming on, Tim. Um, once again, pull request listeners, this will be out on Apple Podcasts uh, with a shareable link. Uh, later. And uh, just as a plug, um, end of this week, we're talking to John Esconis, who's uh, kind of unusual for the pull request lineup. He's a political science professor and just an interesting political mind. We're probably going to talk about the network state and a few other things. And then next week, I've got Marshall Kozloff uh, of the Lincoln Network on. It's funny, we're going to do like uh, an intertwined pot. I'm going to be on his show and he's going to be on mine. We're going to merge the shows next week. Um, so anyhow, that's that. Thanks for joining us. And uh, once again, thanks, Tim. And uh, see you all later. Thanks for having me.